Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about motions to proceed. This is episode six. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from pleasant for once, Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, from, it looks like it's vaguely sunny over there, I can't quite see the window, uh, Istanbul is my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Yeah, doing great here, uh, although... You know, what is your gain appears to be our loss here in Istanbul as weather reports referred to um, Lucifer's heat coming to Istanbul in, in the coming days. Is, is so, that a common Turkish expression for particularly? You know, weather? I am not aware of it being one, um, but I mean, it's the first time I encountered it, but it is apparently something understandable. Uh, and yeah, I made the mistake of like, spending the whole day yesterday outside, and it was atrocious. <laughs> oh, I spent a lot of yesterday outside. I got sunburned on my arms. It was tremendous. Yep. I'm not quite as ghostly pale as usual, um, but uh, that's that's fascinating. I don't, when people want to talk about our, our and this is, this is just, this podcast is all about getting the historical record straight, getting as close to truth as we can get. We know we'll never get there, but we try to get closer. And at that point, I think it's important that we all point out that the popular conception of hell that at least we have in the West comes from Dante, and it is a common expression to refer to something as being as hot as Satan's nether regions. Now, I will remind people that in Dante's Inferno, Satan is frozen frozen up to his waist in an icy lake. So... I think we really need to reconsider which areas are hot and which are not. I'm just, I just think the historical record is very important here, and I think that it is worth throwing away a little bit of my credibility to bring that up at the start of the podcast. I think it's a very, it's a very good point. That uh, you know, one of the other things that we're focused on is um, appreciating complexity and contradiction, and you know, in the inferno. Right, which we take now to mean, and you know, can use to describe just fire. Um, the parts of hell were characterized by heat and you know tortures involving uh, people being burned or having molten lead poured onto them, that sort of thing. But at the very center, as you say, um, it was ice, and that contradiction at the heart of uh, the Divine Comedy is one of the, you know, that, that contradiction creates a tension that has the sort of emotional power of the, of the, of the work um, tied into it, and getting at those contradictions and understanding them is part of what we're trying to do. Right. And we, like, doing important things like probing why is hell circles, but, but the celestial area is spheres. Clearly there's an extra dimension <laughs> to... Something probably. What, I'm trying to remember. Did the Purgatorio have segments that were like spheres or circles? It's been very long time since I've read this. Um, yeah, we probably shouldn't spend too much time. Oh no, I think this is exactly what our listener wants. Right, right. Um, I'm trying. To, I think that. Uh, so w there was a mountain, wasn't there? Was Purgatory? Yes, yes, that's right. A mountain. They were climbing a mountain. Um, yeah. All right, that makes sense. But yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> the important this is we we only we only give you the important digressions on this show, <laughs> right? 
that's really can, key there. And I will say to anybody who's interested in high culture that the greatest video game of all time, Final Fantasy VI, the final boss fight is a four-stage medley that actually mirrors the Divine Comedy. And I'm not joking about this. It actually starts with a demon frozen up to his waist in the lake, proceeds to the Purgatorio, then ascends to the Celestial Spheres with a an image that is uh, a take on the Pieta, and then it goes up to ascend above the clouds. And it it actually makes a disturbing amount of sense in context for a game where characters are largely named after stuff in the Commedia dell'arte. But the point is, this week's episode is about leadership. I'm not going to lead <laughs> us away from this tangent right now. It's actually, well, it's a perfect, because one of the th- issues we may discuss is, you know, Lucifer, uh, particularly Milton's True. Lucifer. Better to serve in, ser- as a leader. rule in hell than yeah. serve in heaven. Right. There are no tangents. There are, yeah. there are, it's because we don't live in uh, a Cartesian plane, and so everything just takes you back to yeah. uh, well, we're, we're all in Trump's. We're all in Trump's brain now. So that's it's, it's that's all true. Just, it's all just bing, 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 it's, bing, bing. It's the shifting <laughs> alien geometries of H.P. Lovecraft that we deal with now. <laughs> yeah, right. It's... Um, we all, all, every triangle on this show has more than 180 degrees of interior angles. Let's just put it that way. Um, I yep. wasted a lot of time in fifth grade trying to prove that I could create a triangle with more than 180 interior uh, degrees. That of interior sounds angles. that sounds like a fifth grade kind of thing to do. I my teacher was very upset about it. My parents were informed about this at parent teacher <laughs> night. I was told to knock it off, and instead yeah. I started memorizing digits of pi. So leadership. Uh, what counts as leadership? This is sort of the first question to have here because people will refer to our current age as one that's bereft of leadership. But we certainly have lots of leaders. So let's open it up. David, what do you think leadership is? It's a term we hear all the time, but we never um, really define it. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, there, there are no tangents. And even your question, even your, you know, your recollection of, uh, a young Charles, you know, puckishly uh, insisting on proving that there could be such a thing as a triangle with interior angles adding up to greater than uh, 180 degrees. Um, you know, that itself is the kind of thing that in our present society uh, we talk about as leadership, you know, innovation, disruption, uh, challenging assumptions, you know, the sort of intellectualized uh, and scientific uh, version of leadership. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about for a while and haven't put into a show yet is, you know, talking about digging into this, the, like the concept of what honor is, because it's a word that everyone knows, but people don't really talk about. And, and actually that people talk about, but people don't really dig into a lot. And, um, you know, that we'll leave that, uh, for the focus of another day, but you know, leadership, I think, is also one of these words where it's constantly referred to. Um, but I think one of the, you know, it, it really is useful to think about what it would mean um, in earlier societies and then what it means now and how it made the transition between. And I think it's pretty clear that leadership, um, uh, you know, if you, if you think about more traditional societies earlier in history, was a, you know, mostly male, mostly public, mostly 
military um, type of uh, trait, um, and that it's something that you know accrued to people over time. So as they aged, elders had sort of a de facto leadership stake in their societies. Um, people could lead based on their persuasiveness and oratory, which, you know, raises the question of who was able to speak, who had the right to address others in public. Um, and then people who, uh, who exhibited the drive and courage and bravery to face death on behalf of their group. Um, so I think that, you know, that's basically, uh, it's pretty obvious. And then, you know, if I'd prepared a, a bibliography for this, you know, there are people I could refer to in that, uh, just right off the bat, uh, Hegel's, uh, description of the, the master slave dialectic, um, gets into this question of the, uh, and it's sort of like an early game theory model of, you know, the idea of um, dominance and submission in society where uh, in a kind of archetypal duel, the person who doesn't flinch and doesn't fear death is presumably capable of awing and intimidating and dominating the other person and that creates a um, relationship between the two where sort of society follows from that dominance of one submission by the other. Um, and so um, the sort of traditional militaristic patriarchal masculine uh, version of leadership is I think something that most societies around the world inherited from the past, obviously there are different models, um, you know, society and therefore different models of leadership. That certainly seems like the, the preeminent one, um, certainly in our own society and, and probably, mo you know, in most societies. But then obviously today, you know, that type of model is not one that many people and certainly not our peers, certainly not in our generation, would, um, you know, would defend or identify with. And now leadership means something totally different. Um, or, I mean, you know, in addition to meaning that, because there is still military leadership, there are still um, certain benefits that accrue to people who exhibit those traits that I was describing before. Um, but it's obviously a much more crowded field, as it were. Yeah, and part of leadership is what, understanding what leadership is, is understanding who leadership is for, which is a concept that has sort of shifted over the millennia because you've got a situation where, as you say, you could have somebody who's a military or a tribal leader whose purpose in you've, you've got that Hobbesian uh, bargain where people give their power to the sovereign so that the sovereign can keep them behaved, that the sovereign can keep them safe. And that's sort of mutual. The sovereign gets something out of that. He gets to live in the fancy palace. He gets to have all of these people love him and all of that. Um, and then the people are kept safe um, in exchange. And we have sort of a, an evolved version of that now where we view, for example, in America, we elect the president. The president is supposed to serve the people. 
but there are still places where the person who runs a country is not a servant of the people. They may claim they are. It's become this thing that um, we expect our leaders to be doing something for us. But that's not always the case. I mean, some, sometimes, particularly if you think about a, 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 monarch, uh, a monarchy, um, you've got a situation where, well, the monarch is the monarch because his family owns all of the land. His family owns these things. It's a position that um, that you've inherited. And it would certainly seem to me, I mean, people have varying views on um, how much one inherits positive characteristics. But if you've got a hereditary form of leadership, it seems to me that that would, by its nature, imply that it's not for the people. Because you're not, you're not doing what you can to get the best leader. You just have a leader and it's his position because he inherited it because it belongs to his family. That seems like the sort of leadership position where it's more about, um, more about the leader than about the lead. Whereas these days we, at least in America want to have a perspective that, uh, leadership is about the lead. It's about us. We kick the leader out with an election. If we don't like the job they're doing, because we're not here to serve, we're not here to serve them. If they can't do something for us, then they're not a good leader and we get rid of them. Yeah, um, I think uh, I think that's an interesting or is an important point. Um, the the you know the leader as the primary servant of the people versus um, you know a vision of society where the people exist to enrich and empower the sovereign leader. You know, obviously we. Um, are two people in a society that, you know, mainly, we, we, I mean, we assume that, that, that what leadership means is uh, the latter, not the former. Uh, but I think, I mean, there are just, there are so many examples of where our, um, our idea of what leadership is and our idea, our ideas about politics um have a kind of prima facie meaning of, uh, you know, the servant of the people, but, um, are able to be twisted at a minimum, um, to create a situation that is much more, you know, empowering a, a leader to, um, extract and exploit, um, resources from below. Um, and yeah, this is I mean, this is the sort of thing where um, you know our our approach, our model is uh, earnest, somewhat moralizing, but also trying to be objective because uh, the point is to try to figure out what we think about this extremely complicated world that we live in in a way that we can um, offer kind of constructive next steps about. You know, because like there has to be, I mean, we have to, we have to be able to figure out how politics and society can encourage the positive leadership, you know, encourage on the one hand or simply require on the other, the positive version of leadership that we're talking about and, um, you know, minimize and prevent um, and render shameful the, uh, 
the more exploitative, extractive version of leadership that we were talking about. So, you know, we're talking about laws, we're talking about uh, constitutions, political structures, and we're also talking about norms. Um, and, you know, we talked about, um, we, you know, talking a lot about, uh, about Greek history, ancient Greek history, and uh, this is sort of apropos of nothing, but as a, a side point, um, on Twitter the other day, I saw, without any context, um, a tweet that just said Thucydides trap house, which I thought was hilarious. Cause I mean, it's like a reference, I guess, to, um, El Chapo trap house, oh. this, you know, this dirt bag left thing that's gotten a lot of coverage and has a lot of, um, followers who, you know, just speaking of them uncharitably, it's like the sort of tech savvy, hardcore Bernie bro who insists on, um, you know, yelling at other people until they decide that socialism is the only possible uh, right. appropriate well, economic that's true leadership. That is true leadership, clearly. Um, anyway, but yeah, like uh, I think we can we can call ourselves Thucydides Trap House, perhaps because our focus on on the Greeks. But one of the things that I, um, you know, just an image of Greek society that I can't shake is the notion that in Athens, um, I believe I'm getting the term right, triarchs, you know, rich people, rich citizens in Athens, uh, a certain period in, the, I think, the earlier, maybe pre-Peloponnesian War, uh, and certainly during part of it, you know, the, one of the duties and privileges of rich members of the society was the financial burden of outfitting a trireme for the Navy. And the concept was that as a member of the society, you gain honor and glory by devoting the resource, your private resources for the uh, defense, the growth of the Athenian state, state power and empire. Now, you know, uh, before we, before we, um, started recording, we were talking about empire and coercion. And, you know, these are, these are sort of dangerous things to talk about because it's hard to, um, to avoid sounding like a fascist. If you, uh, you know, if you extol military, uh, might and that sort of thing. But I think more broadly, you know, if you're talking about society 2,500 years ago, you're finding themes that you can hopefully translate into contemporary terms. And so um, in order to survive as a culture and a society at the time, it was necessary to raise armies, raise fleets um, in order to defend their way of life. They had to do that. And um, so that resulted in a certain amount of aggression, but that's um, you know, not really the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm making is that, you know, rich citizens felt that it was an honor to devote their private wealth for the good of the people, for the good of the society, for the good of the state. And uh, there was a social reward for that, and it created a norm. Um, I'm not, you know, up on the extent to which it was legally required and what that system or structure would look like, but uh, to the extent that we're talking about laws constitutions and norms, you know, clearly there was a normative aspect here where people wanted to step into that role. They wanted to devote uh, 
their own wealth to a you know a good ship that would uh, you know serve in in the fleets and um, you know today uh, maybe not today let's go back to the 19th century the age of you know the great American philanthropists you know, that was clearly a that was a, that was a time when people took classical history seriously and um, it seems quite it seems relatively easy to draw a line between those social practices where, you know, the rich men of Athens uh, in the past took their private wealth and gave it to the good of the society. And then the wealthy, um, you know, the, the Carnegie's, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, um, even, you know, had gathered wealth, but the, but then turned it over to the benefit of the society in ways that were, you know, not like I'm going to, I'm going to build the best tank that the world has ever seen. And I'm going to give it to the army, but no, I'm going to build a library in every major city in the country. Um, you know, and that's a, that's a vision of leadership that, um, is very useful today that resonates with a cultural past and, um, you know, the kind of positive thing that we can, uh, you know, that we can uh, salvage from our fraught cultural history. Um, well, that's, you know, th th as you were saying, as you had been talking about the triremes, it made me think about how um, there are still people today who refer to paying taxes as a civic duty or something of you know unnecessary honor it i was it was i was just getting in my head the image of you know what if we had the USS Warren Buffett you know we 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 don't name <laughs> we don't name our destroyers and aircraft carriers after particularly wealthy taxpayers um right. in a in um which oh my God. it actually i mean as i was thinking about that it, it's kind of absurd but at the same time if that got people to obsess less about what the top marginal tax rate is, it could be a useful trade-off. Yeah, um, that's, that's hilarious. But uh, but then well, you went on. Actually, well, th sorry, I don't want to well, cut you off. Yeah, then um, you went on to talk lot, about you... the libraries, and that's just. I, I'll just quickly say that um, I think that it's fascinating that now instead of building the great ship, they build. We, we put names on buildings now rather than ships. Right, and so the thing that I, um, you know, I kind of talked myself out of steam there and it was really great to have you come back with that hilarious concept of the, you know, the U S uh, Warren Buffett. Um, but, uh, the, um, you know, the problem with what I was just talking about is the question of, you know, again, we're talking, so, you know, if we're talking about, um, laws, constitutions, and norms as different factors shaping behavior, it's great to have a norm of, uh, sort of the duty to contribute to the society so that wealthy people uh, willingly contribute to the society. But, you know, the question is who gets to decide how and what, you know, and so it's great to have libraries, um, but, you know, what, the, I mean, do we just say the benefactor gets to choose, like, kind of what kind of books go in the libraries? Because then we're talking about potentially dangerous um degrees of, you know, control by these wealthy individuals and the end of a public that decides for itself 
where to invest this kind of money. And so, um, you know, you brought up people, you know, people like Warren Buffett who are proud and talk about the civic duty to pay taxes. And, um, obviously that's the, you know, that's the, that's the system that we need in a modern society, but we need to figure out again, as you say, um, how to, how to avoid, um, devaluing taxes as an equivalent contribution, you know, relative to like, this is the concert hall that I am building so that people can have culture in this, in this city. It's like, well, you know, concert hall is great. Culture is great. But like what we really need are clinics for, you know, people who can't get poor people who can't get dental health, right? Like less, uh, you know, less sexy contributions that the society can identify that it needs that um, wealthy people don't necessarily feel are splendid enough to merit their attention. Yeah. Uh, with Obama, I noticed one of the things that kept coming up was this claim that a lot of business people, rich people felt disrespected by him. They didn't like the rhetoric yeah. that was coming out. It wasn't necessarily specific things that he did. It was just that they didn't feel respected enough. And this seems to be a recurring theme um, for people on the right when they talk about um, talk about the successes. Don't punish success. Don't you know treat us like we're the bad guy, that sort of thing. It, it, it's almost made me wonder, um, you know, we don't have the government doesn't have every year a list of the top taxpayers, you know, a list where they say these are the people who contributed the most individually to our society. It'd be like the person who paid the most in taxes this year who gets <laughs> like this honor. He's the taxpayer of the year, you know. Yeah. Um, I almost wonder if it would be possible, probably not in a, in a society as large as ours, but on a smaller scaled society to have something where there's honor and status to being the greatest taxpayer of the year because. Um, everybody gets to say, look, thank you. You contributed the most. And we're also honoring your success because it is thanks to your success that you paid this much in taxes. Right. Right. And that's, that's part of the issue that I think, um, there's gotta be some kind of post partisan post left, right common ground on that where, um, you know, and this is, this is us revealing ourselves as like neoliberals or whatever, but, you know, you need, you need that kind of success. You need those types of, uh, pillars of the community in order to have strong communities. But you, know, you need to encourage those types of people to have socially constructive, um, and also ideally emancipatory, um, relationships with their societies so that it's not just, um, you know, the benevolent king who rules by fiat, but does so in a way that's good for the society. Um, yeah, that's not, that's not healthy. You know, it, for us, uh, as members of a democratic, small D democratic society, we want small D democratic values that encourage, um, you know, the sense of a society in which everyone takes responsibility for themselves. Everyone has initiative. Everyone can rise to lead others. Um, I believe that, I, I think this was uh, Aristotle's definition of, you know, democracy in, in the politics that are, of a society where everyone is ready to rule and be ruled in turn. You know, by well, that would system. be his definition of politeia, wouldn't it? Democracy was the degraded form of 
Oh, right. Oh, excuse, okay. me. Yes. Yep. excuse me. So I forget that democracy was a dirty word to the Greeks. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That was, uh, that was a major lapse on my part. I'm, uh, I'm stunned, frankly. <laughs> well, um, in any case, uh, this, is, this also raises the – this gets to the point where, that I wanted to talk about where we were talking about leadership. Um, and there's so much more we could talk about about leadership and will. But, you know, it's worth putting the footnote to say that, you know, any, under, any proper under, understanding of leadership also has to have a proper understanding of followership. You know, the question of what we, what people expect from the people who are leading them and their relationship to those leaders. Um, and... You know, there, again, there's a lot more we can talk about about, pol- about leadership uh, outside of politics. We're mostly are, have been talking about politics now, but um, you know, earlier on I mentioned uh, young Charles, you know, being an innovator, being a disruptor. That's a kind of leadership that in America in the 21st century, in particular, gets an enormous amount of attention and praise, um, and it's something that we should unpack, particularly relative to these other meanings. Um, uh, you know, there's military leadership, we've, which we've been discussing uh, to some extent, and political leadership. But political leadership is inextricable from political political followership, because when citizens who should take responsibility for the power they ha- they do have, if they show up to vote, if they pressure their representatives. Now, that is tremendous power, and if they choose not to um, wield that power, then they are ceding power to highly motivated interest groups that, uh, by taking up the slack, can you know, radically distort uh, how politics operate. Um, you know, and there, there are so many examples of that in American society today that it's you know, I don't even want to start listing them, but, you know, um, all sorts of, I guess, you know, you call single issue voters or special interests, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, you get these crazy, uh, I guess just the, the most topical, um, event is you know, the fact that this Republican health bill advanced as far as it did, despite in the end, um, you know, getting support below 20% of the population by, by polls. I mean, the, the fact that there was any sense that it was a good idea to continue to push that type of legislation, despite how low the support was, just just shows you um, the you know the bad followership in in America. Right, and the notion that because one of the questions people asked for that bill is this bill is being opposed by patients groups because it's bad for people with pre-existing conditions. It's being opposed by physicians groups. It's being opposed by the insurers. It's being opposed by the governors of the states. And people would say, so who is this bill for? What is the constituency for this bill? And I mean, the interest group that had a constituency for that bill was basically Republicans who didn't want to get primaried. Right. Like, that's exactly. essentially what it was. And that exactly. I would say is, you know, that is followership. That is not leadership. Uh, because if we want to conceive, I mean, part of, I think, what makes you a leader is that you are trying to lead. You are trying to direct things in a particular direction. You are, um, 
in a sense, a follower is someone who just goes along with public opinion on something. A leader is someone who tries to change public opinion or who tries to shift society. I think to a certain extent, leadership is about change, which can be difficult for conservative leaders, people who are trying not to make big changes. But I think in reality, I don't know that there is when people talk about conservatives being change averse, they're not really change averse they're averse to particular directions of changes but well and ideally yeah. particular processes of change um i mean i think i think maybe um you know the i mean life existence is change you know is constant change there is no denying that um you can i mean you can attempt to deny it but there is no healthy way to proceed in life or in politics without knowing that, um, you know, life is a constant struggle to move forward through time. And, uh, you know, and everything that we hold will eventually crumble into dust. Um, that's, it's, it's inevitable. Um, so you have to move forward and attempt to rebuild the things that you treasure but that rebuilding implies a kind of change. You know, there's, there's no way to make it exactly the same as it was before. So societies are constantly evolving um, as slow as, they, as that evolution might be. And I think healthy conservatism is um, engaging with that in a way that is uh, systematic and discerning and um, perhaps slow, but... Uh, you know, but not simply, I mean, this sort of caricature of standing up for history saying stop, you know, saying no. Um, but that's, I mean, that's Burkean conservatism. That's perhaps you could say progressivism, um, but it's not, you know, radical revolutionary. And when we talk about, when we start talking about uh, types of leaders, types of great leaders, you know, that's, as I was taking notes for discussing this concept, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, different categories of leaders. Uh, Cause you have to, you have to evaluate different leaders based on what they set out to do. And there were certain people whose, you know, whose effect was revolutionary. Um, and we have to understand how to evaluate their revolutionary leadership while acknowledging that it's different from what you might call conservative leadership or other forms of, of leadership. Right. Um, and in terms of those forms of leadership, uh, so I brought up the idea that, you know, is leadership essentially about direct, about changing where society is going, uh, sort of, um, yeah. because the question is, uh, is there a difference between being a leader and being a manager? Because yeah. is a leader someone who changes where things are going, who comes up with a new and inspiring direction for people? Or is and, and is a manager somebody who simply makes sure a caretaker, if you will, that makes sure that things keep uh, functioning? And if that is a, a useful distinction to think of between the two uh, forms, then we need to ask ourselves the next question, which is why do we exalt the word leader and uh, more than we do the word manager or caretaker? Why do we say that our caretaker presidents are our worst ones? Uh, I mean, to some extent, we probably say that because they were caretakers right up until the nation collapsed into the Civil War. So they weren't doing a very good job of it. But um, but the question becomes, we exalt this term of leadership. And to say 
if somebody is a manager who keeps things flowing smoothly, they don't have new visions, they don't try to change where public opinion is to revolutionize anything, but they get society to function on a basic, you know, uh, keep the streets maintained, collect the taxes, just do the basic things very well. It almost sounds when you say that like you're diminishing it compared to leadership. But, I mean, are we diminishing it? Should we be diminishing it? Why does leadership get this exalted position? Yeah, um, that's... I mean, it's good. It's a good distinction. And I think I, I mean, I agree with you um, about what you said about, you know, about sort of a directionality of leadership and um, how different, how distinct that, that has to be from management or administration. You know, you're not, and we call, you know, the president's, uh, you know, the body of, uh, people working for the president setting policy, we call it an administration. Um, but despite that, you know, we don't, there's no, there, I mean, and there's a sort of prestige associated with that, but only in so far as it refers to the presidency. And if you think of, you know, the administration administering the country, you know, that it loses all prestige. And, um, and then you get this, you know, this Bannon thing, right. Of, uh, you know, uh, deconstructing the administrative state right so so there are all these negative connotations for um for managing and administrating when it comes to political leadership um but uh, you know the contrary i totally agree is this vision of leadership which is directional and actually you know again this is perfect because it goes right back to the beginning of, the, of what we we're talking about where you know fdr uh great i mean you know one of the lasting examples of great leadership on the left, um, who hasn't, you know, at least yet succumbed to the, the type of, um, historical critique that like Woodrow Wilson, uh, has, for example, on, because of his racism, you know, uh, FDR, great progressive leader. He, uh, I wrote a fantastic, uh, Jean Gray Smith's biography of him. And he talked about his passion for sailing. And he understood politics and sailing as linked, you know, where he, or he understood politics in terms of sailing. And it's a, it's perfect because one of the oldest metaphors for, uh, the state is the ship of state and the ship of state requires a certain common purpose and it requires a leader who plots a course, but because the ocean is, you know, a, a, signifier of mythic intensity for, you know, forces beyond control. Uh, you're just there on the top of the, on the, just on the surface of the ocean. And if the winds don't go as you want, if the waves are too choppy, you know, you can't do what you want to do. You can only attempt to make progress along the course that you set. And if you don't have a direction, then you will be swamped, you know, whenever the, you know, if the storm comes, if you don't have a direction, if you're not going anywhere, then, um, you're just adrift at sea. And I, you know, there's a reason that, um, that these metaphors were chosen to begin with. And even if we don't talk about them that much, um, I think they do have a sort of residue in our use of certain concepts and leadership is, is definitely one of those, I would say. Yeah. Um, I, I like that idea, but that reminds me that what was 
big ad that attacks, well, the second big ad that attacks John Kerry, the windsurfing <laughs> yeah. ad. The idea yeah, exactly. is you can't be exactly. a leader if you're following the wind and sailing. Right. Well, no, but that's, that's the point. That's actually the point is that uh, the windsurfing thing was, you know, here he is facing left, here he is facing right. He's a flip-flopper. Whichever way the wind blows, that's where he goes. Um, whereas, as you said, you know, leadership is about uh, about leading in a direction. It's about taking the people in a direction. And, um, you know, I, I mean, the context I'm putting on that is that you are fighting the waves. You are fighting the wind. Sometimes you have the wind blowing in the right direction, and then things are easy. Um, sometimes there's a storm, and you can't accomplish anything. Or, you know, or you think you, ha you, you want to go in a particular direction, but you're blown off course. And then the, the skillful leader recognizes what is inevitable and, you know, bends as necessary, but, um, you know, but still takes the people somewhere. And um, the problem with this, though, with this idea of motion and direction and um, sort of unitary motion is that this goes, this is like, I mean, if you read Mussolini's writings on fascism and Italian futurism, like this is the path into fascism, <laughs> you know, where the people must be brought together as a single rushing force. You know, that is, that is literally fascist language. Um, <laughs> you were talking about don't, as long as you don't refer to anybody from the first half of the 20th century, yeah. it'll be okay. In this you podcast. already violate. <laughs> yeah, you already. I already violated it twice. Yourself in there. FDR. Yeah. And Mussolini, but, um, but no, but I think, I think, you know, there has to be a direction because the world is constantly changing, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's oppressed people who insist on their rights being respected and changing the way that your society's uh, political structure has, you know, functioned up to that point, which, you know, you can talk about women and um, African-Americans and immigrants, you know, in the United States, for example, um, you know, these are, these are constant change and you have to figure out what to do relative to that change. There's no way to simply preserve what is currently happening. That's, that would, that would be like being on a boat in the middle of the ocean and just saying like, I'm just going to stay where I am. It's like, that's not a choice. You, you move, you know, if you, if you want to stay where you are, you will only be moved by the waves and the wind. Or for that you matter, see? Theseus's ship, you have to replace boards bit by bit and eventually you've changed the ship it's a new ship exactly 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 eventually there's a there's a way in which there's a manner in which you know it is a completely different ship although of course the paradox being the entire time it's the same ship right uh, um, and that's that's actually a great example of like that's how conservatives should think right it's like there is constant change and yet it's still the same ship you know you can still be proud it's the same country it's the same united states it's the same constitution it's the same tradition um and we should be proud that, that we've managed to preserve that legacy, even though, you know, you take some white plantation owner from 250 years ago, and they would be, you know, baffled and perhaps horrified, um, you know, by the degree of change. That's the paradox. And it's what makes our constitutional republic 
great and worthy of praise. And but, speaking of the things that would shock that white plantation owner from 250 years ago, um, as you were describing some of those leadership characteristics, it had me thinking about Obama, because, of course, he's right. our most recently completed president. And yeah. I was sort of picturing a matrix of are you a leader or an administrator, and are you good at what you're doing or bad at what you're doing? And yeah. um, as I was thinking about this just now, it seemed to me that, I mean, Obama falls under, I believe, the administrator category. Mm. And part of why people were disillusioned and unhappy with him was that he ran as a leader. And then he turned right. out to be an administrator. Now, to some extent, people and part of why he got reelected is that after the incredibly chaotic Bush years, People just one of the things I remembered people saying in 2007, 2008 was they wanted somebody who would just come in and make the government just just competently run things because we'd had a lot of ministerial incompetence under Bush. Hurricane Katrina being the response to Hurricane Katrina being an example, the way a lot of stuff in the war in Iraq was handled being another example. And so um, then Obama comes in. And as you said before, sometimes you're in a storm and you can't lead the ship in a new direction. You just have to keep it together. And that's what Obama did. He had a once-in-a-generation um, financial crisis, uh, similar to what FDR did, although FDR did manage to be a leader out of it. Um, but Obama comes in, and I do think the more that I learned about Obama as time went on, um, because his, he, as I said, he ran as a leader, but what I ended up liking about him a bit more is I think my sympathies tend to be a bit more with administrators because there's a lot of little things that we don't spend enough time thinking about that have very real consequences for real people, uh, which we saw in the Bush years where government was not run particularly well. Uh, so Obama comes in and he, I think, was a very great administrator in the sense that when you pause and think, what were the government scandals under Obama? Yeah. I mean, they happen. There, there are certainly things that people on the right can point to, and sometimes right. they're exaggerating them. Sometimes they're valid critiques. But if you look at the fact that the government just for eight years, excluding the times that the Republicans in Congress were able to bring us to a shutdown or a debt ceiling fight, which, right. you know, again, was not anything Obama could control. He was the one making it reasonable. Obama just – we and people people complained that the recovery was too slow. Yeah. But the recovery was constant. It kept going. Right. And, right. Um, and, and we ended up with, by the standards of a once-in-a-generation uh, financial collapse – was a pretty good way that we got out of it. Obama did the basic competent things that he needed to do to get us through the through the difficulties to get us on a solid steady path for growth. The problem was people wanted a leader and they got an administrator and then they yeah. rebelled against that by going for Donald Trump because they said well he well I mean some people did that he would shake things up because exactly. Donald Trump yeah. and and we've seen in the first 6 months of the Trump administration he is a terrible administrator. <laughs> government is not functioning the way that it should be. Positions aren't yeah. staffed. The state department is being gutted. I mean everything I hear every time I hear anything about what's going on in the state department right now I am frightened. Um yeah. it's a lot of the stuff that's going on in government is a disaster on a level of basic competency now. They can't even get you know the number of world leaders names they keep misspelling in their in their releases, right. the number of typos, it's just the sort of thing right. that can happen every now and then. But the level of dysfunction that we're seeing out of this White House marks it as just terrible at the administrative aspect. But again, you said Bannon wants to dismantle the administrative state. Trump wants to come in and shake things up and be a leader. Yeah. But yeah. Trump is well, kind you know, of, yeah. so just to interrupt. Uh, this is, you know, this goes back to the drain the swamp thing. And I had a, I had an epiphany a couple weeks ago where, 
this is this is maybe going to sound a little weird, but um, you know, drain the swamp sounds great, right? Because who likes swamps? Well, mosquitoes. You mentioned mosquitoes. Yeah, mosquitoes definitely. Um, and of course, DC is a swamp. Yes, but uh, so you know, drain the swamp as you're just talking about, you know, getting rid of the people in DC, and that's the that's what the phrase sort of means. But um, there is a there's a way in which it's the phrase is telling in a way that, uh, you know, Trump doesn't intend, which is that, you know, we learned from what we learned from Katrina, from Hurricane Katrina. You're talking about, you mentioned, you know, disaster management as part of administration. Um, what we learned from Hurricane Katrina is that wetlands, another name for swamp, have a crucial role in an ecosystem where they serve as a buffer and they, um, you know, they ameliorate and moderate the effects of weather so that uh, basically upcurrent ecosystems are protected from, you know, storms coming in off the ocean is the, the perfect example from Katrina. And what happened with Katrina? What was part of the reason that this that New Orleans was so vulnerable to that storm is that the Army Corps of Engineers turned wetlands into a rushing river. You know, going back to what I was talking about before about fascism, you know, this, uh, I'm not saying that Trump is a fascist. I'm not saying that Republicans are fascists. But what I am saying is that, again, as I was saying before, traits that are admirable, uh, concepts that are resonant and compelling and interesting have also been exploited by genuinely evil fascist people. And so we have to be wary of them. And so what does drain the swamp means? Well, if it means, you know, take a wetland and turn it into a river that shoots silt deep into the Gulf of Mexico and destroys the wetlands that protect a city from climate events, you know, then draining the swamp is a terrible idea. Um, and to some extent, you know, politically, what do what do we want? What what should conservatives want out of politics? Conservatives should want a political system that moderates and slows things down and allows for different factors to come in and merge and you know ferment and percolate slowly. That is a swamp. <laughs> that is what is that's what DC is supposed to do. That's in Federalist 10. Going back to the founding, this you know, Federalist Ten is the is my most beloved document. I mean, I haven't read it in a while, but um, you know, but it's this concept of a pluribus unum. It's where it's described, where you have different interests in different parts of the country that make it necessary to expand the country. Or, well, it basically describes the mechanism by which expanding the country to as great an extent as possible will ensure the freedom of as many people as possible by allowing for different interests to balance against each other in different ways on different issues. Um, and that's, of course, the idea. And of course, you know, that's just, that's a, it's an ideal vision of what the Constitution would do. Um, but that's how, that's how the, the swamp of Washington is supposed to function, where you have different streams coming in, in from different parts of the country and just kind of mellowing up together in this wetland that kind of smooths things out and keeps things from, you know, from getting too, uh, you know, from moving too fast. 
And it's not a waterfall. You know, it's not a rushing stream. Nor is it, you know, like just a flat baked plain of land that, you know, it's just if you drain a swamp, what happens? It just dries up and you get you get a flat dirt, you know, uh, a flat plain. And, you know, James, James Scott just published a new book about uh, the origins of states in, um, you know, the, the fertile crescent in wheat producing grain producing areas. And, you know, what do you get if you have a flat plain, you know, converted from uh, wetland to the extent that it's like a fertile flat plain, you get despotism. You know, you get the, the rise of states in the fertile crescent that were, you know, authoritarian despotic uh, states. So, you know, America wants more swamp, not less, you know, conservatives most of all should want swamps. And, um, you know, the thing is that they recognize that, uh, you know, like what's that, um, duck hunter, what were those duck hunter people? Oh, duck right, dynasty. Like, duck dynasty. Yeah, exactly. Like they love swamps. <laughs> This is sort of a stupid joke, and I'll, I'll I'll let this drop now. But but the point is that there is a certain um, I think there is a certain value and an instruction instructional value in this uh, this metaphor in precisely the opposite way that Trump uses it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Trump, I mean, uh, man, it's and, this, and I guess again trying to tie it back to you know what I was just talking about. Um, you know, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about leadership in a democratic society. Therefore, we're talking about followership and we're talking about individuals taking responsibility for themselves and empowering themselves in the dem in the democratic system. And, um, you know, there has to be a process for filing the edges and, you know, making all those different democratic interests fit together. Um, and that's what swampiness looks like. Um, and you know, a leader who just sort of administers that process and keeps the economy chugging along, keeps adding jobs, you know, second, I think it's the second longest uh, economic recovery in modern American history. I thought it had been the single longest. Okay. I don't know. But anyway, one of, of one, certainly one of the longest um, that, uh, you know, you just keep it moving and don't try to, you know, lash the people together to do something and shake things up. Um, you know, it, it's disappointing only if people are bad followers and want that flashbang excitement that, you know, conservative Americans and Lincoln taught in, you know, the, the Lyceum address specifically warned against. Yeah. I, so... When we talk, because uh, that reminded me that, um, you know, Obama's slogan was hope and change. And yeah. when we're talking about leaders, we often exalt the change aspect that they can be transformative. And, uh, you know, he said hope and change, but then he gave But his slogan wasn't competent administration, which is <laughs> right. essentially what he gave us. Yeah. And then, I mean, some people will disagree on how competent, but he he didn't destroy one of America's major cities through incompetent response to a crisis um he didn't invade the wrong country and get us bogged down in a war for 10 years but um 
uh, he, if he'd run on the slogan of competent administration, I'm curious to know how that would have, I mean, not necessarily that exact slogan, but I'm competent to know how that would have, to see how that would have, I'm be wondering, I would want to know how that would have gone in 2008 because people were crying out for competent leadership. Right. Uh, but because then in 2016, Hillary Clinton ran on competent leadership, competent administration as her basic, I mean, her de facto slogan yeah. was, I will get in and I can't tell you anything I'm going to do differently than what, what he did, but I'm going to do it competently. And people said that's just not an appealing enough vision. We want a leader. So they picked Donald Trump, who would do everything incompetently. Yeah, um, no, that's perfect. That's, a, that's that a perfect desire. And Trump also sort of brings to mind one of the other elements of leadership that, that I wanted to discuss. And amazingly, we're almost running low on time here. Um, we've barely scratched the surface of things we were discussing originally. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up is why do people seek positions of leadership? And we've mentioned before yeah. that... Um, it could be considered an honor to be the one who funds the triremes. Um, it, it, uh, there are material rewards for some people, but that's less of a factor in some societies like ours. I mean, people would say, well, Trump is just doing this out of the goodness of his heart because he makes less money as president, um, which, uh, well, without, we don't really know his finances. We can't exactly know how profitable this is being for him. But the question is, we do know in American society that being president is, I mean, most people, if you were to ask them, what is the salary of the president of the United States? And I believe right now it's about $400,000 a year, which is a lot. I mean, that, that puts you in the 1%, I think. It's definitely the top 2%, but I think it puts you about the 1%. But if you're the sort of person who could become president, the amount of money you could make doing something else is probably considerably higher. Um, and you'll probably get a fancy book deal after you leave that's worth some amount of money. But... Um, people don't run, nobody runs for president for the money. Nobody does that. Right. They do it for this sense of glory. They do it for this sense that if you are a leader, that is an exalted thing. That is something our society says the leader is the best one in the society. And so somebody like Donald Trump, who is entirely interested in his ego being satisfied by people telling him he's the best at everything. I mean, that's sort of the bad motivation to become a leader, not because you have anything you want to do, not because you... Uh, it actually reminds – so there's a – this is a, an analogy that I'm not sure if this will shed any light or be helpful at all. But um, Conan O'Brien, when he took over The Tonight Show and then ended up losing it and uh, Jay Leno came back, I heard right. somebody say that the thing about both Letterman and Conan O'Brien, who wanted The Tonight Show and didn't get it, versus Jay Leno, who did get it twice, the thing was that – Letterman and Conan both wanted to have the show so that they could do new things with it. They wanted to mm. have it so they could experiment and innovate. Jay Leno wanted The Tonight Show because he just wanted to have it. Um, yeah. In the sense that he just he didn't have any new ideas for it, but he liked doing it. Um, he liked yeah. being in that position. And I feel that there's you get that with some leaders. Some leaders just want to be the leader to be the leader because that's the position that we exalt in society. We don't right. exalt right. the engineer. We don't exalt... Uh, I mean, We've gotten to a point where we do exalt some of the tech innovators a bit more than we used to. Right. And this is to the extent that this podcast, you know, that we're getting towards the end of it and uh, therefore run out of time to discuss certain issues. That, I think, would be one of the themes that we under explored is the difference between different types of leaders um, and the way that, again, disruption, challenging authority, challenging received conventions um, is actually understood to be leadership. Um, more and more, um, 
And I mean, maybe we can try to cram some of that in, but um, well, we may be we may be just about out of time now. I mean, we feel like we need to just we should just have recurring episodes on leadership. This will just be yeah, on well, leadership, I, and then the next week, like a month later, we can have on leadership part two, where we get into some other aspect of it because this is right. such fertile territory. Yeah, and I mean, and I was, really again, as I said, I was, I was jotting down different you know types of of leaders um, that you know you have to discuss relative to other types of leaders and this could be that could be the you know the sort of the organizing theme of another type of uh, another podcast on this right. on this theme um i did i did want to say though uh you know because you know put this I, could, I kind of put a reference to this earlier on when i was talking about leadership in traditional societies and it's a question of who has the right to speak you know who has the right to participate in um the process of winning authority to lead um and, you know, you mentioned, um, I mean, here we are, like Hillary Clinton, Obama, Trump. I mean, it is a heady moment to think about these issues in terms of identity that you just you can't avoid thinking about it in terms of identity. Whatever your conclusions are um, about the role that identity played in uh, this question of how people responded to these visions of leadership or these, you know, bids for leadership, whatever your, whatever your um, conclusion about the role that it played, uh, you know, it, we really are at a moment where it is impossible. It should be impossible to a, avoid seeing that aspect of this political moment that we're in, where, um, you know, going on your, on your point uh, from, you know, Obama called himself a leader and a, a, a change agent, you know, again, to, to refer to the type of uh, leadership that we've depoliticized and kind of denuded and turned into, you know, Tom Friedman jargon and stuff, right? Uh, you know, a change agent, he's a change agent, um, you know, hope and change. And then Clinton comes along and he's like, more of the same, you know, I'll, I'll give you good old more of the same, really good more of the same. Um, uh, the, uh, the Vox guy, Ezra Klein, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I really do not like a lot of the stuff that comes out of Vox. I don't like the tone, um, you know, but there are some, there are definitely Vox articles that are absolutely unavoidable and important to grapple with. And one of them was, uh, you know, an Ezra Klein piece on models of leadership and models of oratory, uh, comparing Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, and Clinton, and Clinton in particular as basically embodying this much more "quote unquote" feminine version of uh, discussing ideas, as opposed to the charismatic leader, you know, on the top of a hill addressing uh, the loyal followers. And I mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, that I think one of the failures of American society in the aftermath of electing Obama was that people really did want to be led, and they didn't understand that part of what Obama was trying to do was, you know, as a community organizer turned president, it was, I'm going to help you organize and run your own communities. And I think um, that sounds downright conservative. Yeah, I mean, he's and this is the thing. I mean, there are a lot of people 
on the left who hate Obama because of his conservatism, because they felt betrayed by his degree of centrism and conservatism. Um, and to me, you know, obviously Obama was the president. So if there's ever like a tie for, you know, what did he do wrong versus what did other people do wrong? It's like, well, he's the president. He should have, he has the responsibility to get it right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to let him off the hook for this failure, but at the same time, I think a lot of Americans thought that they had done, you know, they were done. Like once they voted for him, it's like, okay, that's it. That's the end of my responsibility. Um, the rest of it's up to him. And then more of them, again, they came back and they reelected him. Um, but you know, the difference in, you know, electoral and, um, I mean, the difference in, in turnout is enough to tell you that people had, you know, he'd lost the shine. And why was that? Well, I think part of it was that he had tried to send a message of, you know, I'm going to get out of your way. I'm going to help you by, you know, by using the government to stop these huge problems that will, that will destroy our society if we don't address them, climate change, uh, spiraling healthcare costs, um, endless commitments to foreign wars. You know, these are things that will destroy our society if we don't administer them properly. Right. And that, that was, that was what he was always trying to do, I think. And then we dropped the ball because we didn't realize as a society, the rest is up to us. Yeah. I mean, there's even the element where people said, oh, we've elected the first black president. This is this big monumental change thing. But that really has, I mean, Obama was the one charismatic enough to win, but that's the thing that is about the people, not the candidate. The people said, yes, we're willing to elect a black president, and they did. And they sort of viewed to a certain extent that that was about Obama or to invest the hopes in societal change in Obama when you know, it's, it's almost a Wizard of Oz style. It was in you the whole time. You were the ones who, <laughs> who could have made this change. And yeah. this does bring up one of my... Or, so, sorry, I have, to, I have to jump in here because, again, it's like, oh, yeah, we elect Obama. Therefore, you know, there's no more race problems. That's exactly what I was about to say. That was the rest right? of the sentence. Which but is I like, love... okay, he did it for us. You know, we elected him, so it's over. Whereas it's like, no, this is us now possibly being able to start that conversation. But what was wonderful about this was that um, the people who just steadfastly, adamantly say racism is gone, we elected a black president, are always people who didn't vote for Obama. (laughs) Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're just sort of, are you just sort of thinking like you're in the voting booth in 2008 and you're like, well, voting for Obama would end racism forever, but I really like McCain's tax policy. Yeah. I mean, it just it just strikes me as kind of hilarious that that's the way it always seems to be going. That's a, that's a funny that's a funny line. I do suspect, however, that you know a lot of the people these these mythical that's not the tone I want. Sorry, not mythical. These these people who are who you know op ed writers are trying to figure out you know these voters in the industrial Midwest who voted for Obama and have now voted, now voted for Trump. You know, I, I bet a lot of those people who did in fact vote for Obama, at least in 2008, um, you know, are also people who thought like, okay, this is it. You know, this is enough on the race. This is enough of the race stuff. I voted for Obama. What, what's your problem? Right. Right. And that's, and that's part of their bad faith about this issue where it's like, yeah, you don't get off that easy. You know, we are a society this problem is part of our society. You don't get to just, you know, 
expiate your guilt by this right. indulgence. You know, Likewise, something I've noticed is um, when you accusations of racism are thrown around both too liberally and not liberally enough, in the yep. sense that um, what is it, the Avenue Q song? Everyone's a little racist. Um, <laughs> where the issue is the whole point of what some people on the left are trying to say about race is that it's the societal thing that is subconscious, that it's implanted in your mind. But we've made racism, we, we talk about racism like it's this binary yes or no thing. Are you a racist or aren't you a racist? Instead of what it is, which is that we all have our own little biases that we may not even be conscious of that we need to deal with. And that's a lot of hard work. And people don't people yeah. want to view it as this, I'm a good person, I'm not a racist. So it's sort of been my observation that the people who get maddest when they get accused of having said something racist or being called a racist are the ones who are a bit more racist, not necessarily completely racist, but a bit more simply because people who are um, in a better place on their own biases and racism are the ones who say, you know, you're probably right. There is a little bit of racism in, um, you know, that's under the surface of what I just said. Whereas people right. who view it as this binary thing have to say, you can't, nothing I did was ever, I'm completely colorblind. Yeah. I don't see race at all. And that, yeah. that is, I, I mean, that's the well, unhelpful version of it. I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, I, I had a hardcore French existentialism phase and you know, when I was younger reading a lot of books. Well, I and hope you've I gotten think, rid of the tattoos at least. Yeah, well, I was always, always conservative enough youth that I had not yet had a tattoo. But, um, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the operative word that you use was this binary where people, you know, want to think of themselves as either racist or not racist. And really it's, you know, we should be more mature than that and understand that we are the record of what we do. You know, we, that is who we are in a sense. And, um, when we do things that are racist, we, when we have thoughts and allow ourselves to think in ways that are racist, those are, mo you know, is that us? being racist or showing that we are racist? No. It's like, those are us. Those are we, we people doing or thinking those racist things or thoughts. And it doesn't mean that we can not, it doesn't mean we can't be redeemed. Right. right. And so, you know, there's a, there's a huge problem in the way that we talk about these. Right. I mean, acknowledging them is how you deal with them. Exactly. If you're exactly. in denial and about it, then you're not fixing the problem. Exactly. And, and to some extent, uh, you know, the sort of leftist call-out culture is implicated in the problem to the extent that um, that it makes that claim. Like, I'm, you know, this person is a racist, as opposed to this, this is a racist thing. Exactly. This person right. is racist and this other person is woke, as opposed to, you know, this is a racist thing. I'm going to make the case that this is a racist thing that was said or done, you know. And here's how this person can come back. You know, this is how this person can overcome this. Uh, you know, just more constructive. Obviously, again, this is just a you know our tone is we're trying to be as constructive. Yeah, as I, which feeds back into I mean we we've gotten a little off course here, but I think it was a useful part of the discussion. But we talk about Trump because everything has to come back to him these days. Yeah, well. um, you know, I people say that it's bad that people you can't say certain bad things about Trump's campaign because then it reflects poorly on people who voted for him, and then and then that'll antagonize them and whatever. But we need to be able to make the distinction that. I think that voting for Trump was a was a stupid act, but I don't think that people who voted for Trump are stupid. You know, we, right. we can all be. I do 
plenty of stupid things on a regular basis. And I do not consider myself to be a stupid person. But you have to yep. be able to... Uh, I have a friend who... Um, and I picked this term up from him. And when I'm like sort of going through where I've spent money uh, each month, because I'm obsessive compulsive. I like to track things. Yeah. And I like to label where I spend my money. And I actually make pivot tables just to see, like, where am I spending all of my money? Because I'm a nerd. Um, and uh, But my friend had a thing where whenever he would do something phenomenally stupid that would cost him money, he would say that he was paying an idiot tax. And that's, great. that's yeah. what I put in on my spreadsheet whenever I do something particularly stupid, like when you drop your phone and it cracks. And, right. Um, you've got to spend money to fix that. I write it up, like, what category is this? This is idiot tax. And so yeah. I do not consider myself an idiot, but I've paid the idiot tax a fair number of times. <laughs> and I think that voting for Trump was an idiot tax, but you're not an idiot. Right. And I just think that that's, that's an hilarious. important distinction to bear in mind. Yeah. It was a it was a referendum on whether we are going to pay the idiot tax for the next right. four years. And unfortunately, the referendum that levy passed. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I. I look forward to a series of leadership things on various subjects because this, I think, was a great discussion, the exact sort of thing we want to talk about here. But we got into, like, question two of the five questions we were talking about in the emails. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think that's tremendous. Any any last words you want to throw in? Well, you know, just that, again, uh, you know, speaking of leadership, I mean, we definitely have to do another um, sort of episode on this theme because, you know, thinking of, like, okay – we want to be moral. We want to talk about norms in, in, in terms of setting constructive norms uh, to guide behavior. But we have to understand that leadership has to be understood. You know, if we think about great leaders, it's like, are we talking about people who are morally great, people we approve of? Or are we talking about people who we recognize, you know, unfortunately had an enormous impact because of their quote unquote leadership uh, of their countries? And so, you know, people like, um, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, you know, people whose effects were profoundly negative uh, from all sorts of standpoints, but, you know, where the absolute value of their impact was vast, you know, and comparing them to other people, we, uh, we have more, you know, a fonder right. picture. Of I mean, look, I usually quote Lord of the Rings. This time there's, I mean, that just brings to mind a key quotation from Harry Potter. Which nope. is the line about he who must not be named did great things too. Terrible, yes, but great. Right. Yeah. And that's where you can be with uh, some kinds of leaderships. All right. Well, everybody, um, yes, uh, next week we will be off because David is actually going to be in America. And I am going to be visiting my family in Ohio, uh, playing with lots of kitties. I may or may not post pictures. Um so uh, I hope everybody has a great week. Uh, see you in two weeks. And now, as, as our little soapbox sign-off for the day, look, here's what was going on with the triangle. I had this idea that if I, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't just based on me wanting to break the rules. It was based on a thought. I looked at these things like the side angle side theorem and knowing that as one side gets longer, the angle that the angle uh, connected to it has to get bigger. So my theory was you start out with the first two sides of the triangle that are almost a flat line. It's 179.99 degrees, this very, 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 very tiny incline. And then you're going to take the angle on uh, one side of that, and you're going to say, well, as I keep making this almost, almost, but not quite 
uh, uh, flat line longer and longer and longer, then the angle that's next to it has to keep getting longer and longer and longer. So my theory was you just keep extending that line until the angle next to it gets to one degree, and then it doesn't matter what's going on with the other with the other angle. I know that angle gets smaller and smaller the more I'm extending the angle, the, uh, the second angle, my theory was you've already passed 180 degrees, so it doesn't matter. Now, I didn't quite understand that you might not actually be able to do that, and I wasn't familiar with things like Zeno's paradox in the, in the notion that you could have something be sort of asymptotic where it never can quite get to, a, to one degree, no matter how long you make the line. I just, I, I didn't realize diminishing returns, and for that, dear listener, I am sorry. <laughs>